0: amen amen we're so glad you're with us here um i not keep saying this uh, but i'm missing i'm missing our people Lori said it to me the other day she's like i'm missing our people missing our older saints especially missing so many people that are that are not able to join us just yet Um, but it'll happen there'll be a time when we can come back together and it'll a party it will be right Amen. Amen. Well, we're so glad you're with us today. Hey, we've been in a series in the book of Acts for four summers. This is our fourth summer where we're going verse by verse and we're talking about these different stories of the church and it is amazing. I love the story of the church in the book of Acts. Um, And this is kind of the time period now we're we're getting into where we're we're seeing the third missionary journey uh, of Paul begin to take off and this is just a fun, a fun book to be in. I don't know about you guys this summer, how, how your summer's going with all this COVID and stuff, but one of the things that my family has able, been able to continue to do that's been sort of normal is go to the neighborhood pool. We love to swim. My, my girls love to swim. Uh, I like to read at the pool. My wife likes to just be in the sun and just bake. I don't know. I don't see the purpose in it. I'm like looking for the shady spot, right? I want to be coolest exactly. I want to be in the cool. I want to be in the shade. She's like, "Where's the sun that can burn me?" That's where I want to. So we split up and do our things, you know. But uh, what's funny is, when I get in the pool, I don't spend any time in the shallow end. I did when my kids were little because I had to, right? They were little We play in the shallow end. But now that they can swim all over the place, I, I hate the shallow end. I want to be in the deep end. I, want, I, I hold my breath, I open my eyes, I swim to the bottom. I pretend I'm flying, you know what I mean? I'm weightless. It's wonderful. I love it. Uh, in fact, I'll tell you this quick story. Lori and I one time went uh, scuba diving in Mexico. And you say, oh, are you certified scuba divers? No, no, we're not. Um, but in Mexico, you can get certified pretty quickly, about 20 minutes for a certain amount of money. And so we sh- that sounds safe. Let's do that. Uh, so we got certified pretty quickly and we, we, we start to scuba dive, which has always been something I wanted to do. And, and it's pretty amazing what you can do is, is you're getting air and you're breathing and there's this little button on your little handhold deal that you're holding. It causes you to go down to the bottom or up to the top. I just thought that was fascinating. So when we get 25, 30 feet of water, I'm going down whoo, and I'm coming up cause I like the feeling, right? I like to be weightless. Like this is Awesome. And a, a scuba instructor swims over quickly and goes. Like, you know, I'm like, oh, okay, I get it. Evidently, I was not supposed to do that. So, uh, but I, I love the feeling of being in deep water. You know, if I were to ask you to come swoon with, with me in our pool, and you were to come over to our neighborhood pool, and all you did was to stand in the shallow end, water up to about your knee, and you just stood there, that'd be weird, Right? And I go, hey, that's cool. I'm glad you're standing in the shallow end, but you're not swimming, right? Yes, you're in the pool. Yes, you're sort of getting wet, but you are not swimming. And sadly, that's what a lot of Christians or a lot of people who think they're Christians are doing in the church. They go, hey, I'm in the pool. I'm in the church. When really, they may not even know Christ. And if they do, they're sure not in the deep end of discipleship. That's what we're talking about today. Where is your discipleship? How deep is your discipleship? Where are you with the Lord? Are you content to sort of just splash around? Yeah, I know him, I go to church, I have some form of religion. Are you swimming in the deep? Dr. Adrian Rogers said that the Bible is sort of like a pool. It's shallow enough for a child to come and take a drink without fear of drowning. And yet it's deep enough for a a scholar to swim and never touch the bottom. That's the Bible. That's the word of God. And yet so many of us are content just to splash around instead of be weightless in the mystery and the beauty and the depth of the discipleship that God has called us to. Here's the reality. There's a lot of people who think they're Christians and they're not in the church. They have some form of religion, uh, some form of church attendance, but they don't know Christ or they're not living for Christ and in essence, they're standing in the shallow end. So that's a question I want you to wrestle with this morning. Where am I in the pool of discipleship? Today in our text, I uh, want to talk about, obviously, Paul has been kind of the main character. Last week, he wasn't. Last week, we talked about this character by the name of Apollos. And we remember that the church in Ephesus, the little few people, brothers and sisters, recommended Apollos to the church in Corinth in uh, chapter 18 of Acts. And so they, they basically have now sent Apollos to Corinth, and we're going to begin, begin to see Paul. He's already started his third missionary journey, but he's going to make his way back to Ephesus and keep his word. Um, Paul's going to run into a lot of different people. He's going to run in, and this I think is interesting, in this conversation today, he's going to run into three different types of people. He's going to run into almost Christians. They think they have some form of identity as disciples, but they're not believers in Jesus. He's going to run into people who are not Christians. Some of them become Christians. And then he's going to run into a third group of people, which I really want us to focus on this morning as the church, and that is deep Christians who've made the choice to swim in the deep end of God's love and his discipleship that we can know. But I want to show you a map. We're talking about all these different cities. Let me show you a map. This is Paul's third missionary journey. Over here on the right-hand side, he's going to start the missionary journey from Antioch. And it says he's going to go through the areas of Galatia and Phrygia. Phrygia is just north of Galatia. So Antioch is going to go around to his hometown. This is where he grew up in Tarsus, Derbe, Lystra, Iconium. As he gets closer to Phrygia, he gets to, uh, that's Antioch, Pisidia. And then he's going to make his way overland. Most of the time, he's getting on a boat to go to these places. This time, he's going to go overland to Ephesus. Okay, I wanted you to kind of see across the Sea, you see Corinth that is now where Apollos is so they still haven't met each other the church has sent Apollos to Corinth and now Paul has made his way back keeping his word to the people in the synagogue he said if it's God's will for me to come back I'll come back and he's now made his way back to Ephesus let's look at the word together Acts 19 verse 1 says while Apollos was at Corinth Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, well, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me this morning as we approach this text together? Father, thank you. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your mercy that is new today. There's so much that you want to speak to us in this text today, God, and I pray that you would help us to open our hearts and minds to hear it. Spirit of the living, God, would you lead us to all truth, and may I stay out of your way. May I decrease, God, and may you increase in this time and in this place. Help us to be obedient to you, Lord, to choose to follow you, to choose to be intentional, to know you more, and to make you known. It's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so Dr. Luke, again, great storyteller. Uh, one of the things that makes this book so interesting and exciting is his ability to, to share story. So remember, he, he kind of did this pericope, we called it last week, where he said, meanwhile, in Ephesus, over here, there was this, this is uh, Apollos and Aquila and Priscilla. Well, now he's sort of coming back to Paul. And he says, now Apollos is still over in Corinth, but here's, let's get back with Paul. And of course, he's going to bring the story, of course, back over to Ephesus. And Paul runs into this group of 12 men, uh, Alistair Begg calls them the almost Christians. They're almost Christians. You know, when I play golf sometimes, it's not usually that pretty, but when I play golf, I'll hit the ball and I'll go, man, that's close, but yet so far. And that's kind of where these guys were. It, they, they were close, but yet so far. They, they really weren't that close. They, they, they knew a few things. They had a form of uh, religion, a form of identity in something. But it wasn't in Jesus. So the first seven verses in chapter 19 are about these guys. So Paul asks two questions. Paul, what's interesting is Paul can tell something's going on with these guys. Something's not sitting right with Paul. As he meets these guys, as they're talking, they're spending time together, he's like, can I, can I ask you guys a couple of questions? Clarifying questions, right? you like, sure. He says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you were baptized? Right? And their answer is no. Okay, that's a pretty big telltale sign right there. No, and then they say, we don't even know what the Holy Spirit is. So that's kind of a concerning moment here. Uh, then he says, well then, okay, in essence, why were you baptized? Or what, what, baptized, what baptism did you have? And they said, we were baptized in, you know, in John's baptism. Kind of like if somebody were to come to our church and they, we were to say, hey, do you know Jesus? And they're like, nope, but I've been baptized. You're kind of like, why? Why were you baptized? Where, who, where were you baptized? Oh, this church over here. Same thing. Don't know Jesus, but we're baptized, right? So he asked them, he said, so you, you received John's baptism. And then he clarifies, but John said that his baptism was one of repentance. And he pointed people to the one who came after him, who is Jesus. These guys were clueless to Jesus. Now, what's interesting is Apollos and these disciples are similar because they're all disciples of John. But at least Apollos, you might remember, said was instructed in the way of the Lord. And it also said about Apollos that he taught accurately about Jesus. So at least Apollos knew a little bit more about Jesus and the gospel than these guys did. And yet Luke calls them Disciples. So Paul has this exchange with these guys, and I want to bring something to your attention here that that is sort of out in the world of Christendom, and that is this is a troublesome verse for some people, and I want us to address it, okay? What the deal is is this, sometimes you ask the question, how many, why do we have so many denominations in the world? Right, just go down the street and you go, that one's different, that one's different, that one's different. Well, it's verses like this that people go, I believe this is saying that, And there's somebody over here going, no, 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 I believe it's saying that. And therefore they split off and then they, you know, important verses. This verse, some denominations try to use as what's called a proof text to support their doctrinal theory about salvation. And I want to look at that so that you can have a clear understanding of what we believe here at South City and what we believe the Bible is teaching, even in this text. Uh, It's a big doctrinal question. Here's the number one question that I have for you. When these guys met Paul, or when Paul met these guys, did they know Jesus as their Savior? That's the big question. I mean, Luke calls them disciples, John's disciples. And some denominations will say, yes, they knew Jesus. And then they'll say a little bit later, and that's, and that's why when then later Paul prays for them, and then they receive the Holy Spirit, saying their doctrine is salvation is a two-part process. That's what they're saying. Some people take this verse as a proof text and say salvation, two-part process. These guys already knew Jesus and now they've met Paul and and they prayed and now they have the Holy Spirit and salvation is a two-part process. Here's the other big question, though, that we have to ask. If If they didn't know Jesus, right, did they know Jesus or didn't they not? Because uh, it causes quite a bit of a, a problem if they don't know Jesus, in, at least in that doctrinal uh, conversation. Here's the thing. Paul was asking this question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you were baptized? Almost as if Paul was saying, see, you receive the Holy Spirit when you're saved, right? When you believe, did you receive the Holy Spirit? I mean, that's what happens, right? And why come you guys don't seem like you have the Holy Spirit? And they're like, No. We didn't. Okay, well, that's the first clue whether or not they know Christ or not, right? No, we didn't receive the Holy Spirit. Second, we don't even know who he is. We don't even know who Jesus is, Messiah. How can you know Christ and not know that Jesus is Messiah? How can you be in Christ and not have the Spirit? You can't. These guys didn't know Jesus. Clearly, this is not a very sound proof text for that doctrinal position. The, these guys clearly did not know Christ. And then he says, Well, yeah, because when you get saved, the Spirit comes. So, what were you baptized in? Why? why? So he prays for these guys. He tells them that John was pointing to Jesus. John the Baptist was pointing to Jesus. He, he is the Messiah, witnesses to them. And the good news is they were prepared. So in their, ba- in their discipleship with John, at least they had some sense of preparation for Messiah because he tells them about Jesus, they believe, and they're baptized. Right? So here's the, here's the I'm going to break it down for you. Here's the theological point we need to be clear upon and wrestle this down. When we are saved, when we ask Jesus to save us, forgive us of our sins, to change our lives, when we believe that he died for us, understand that the spirit of the living God comes into our lives in that moment. There's not a waiting process, not an application process. There's not two steps, there's one step. And I want us to look at a few scriptures to give you some confidence in that. Romans 8, 9b says this, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him have the Spirit of Christ, you belong to Christ. If you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Christ. Their answer to Paul was, no, we didn't receive the Spirit. And by the way, who's the Spirit? According to Paul's definition here, Romans 8, 9b, you you have the Spirit of God because you know the Lord. If you don't have the Spirit, you don't. You don't belong to him. This is what Peter said in the message in, in Pentecost. Acts two thirty eight says, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter's explaining this one-step process. This is salvation, that we repent, that we ask God to forgive us of our sins, that we're baptized, and guess what happens as a part of that process? We receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a one-step process. Look at Ephesians 1. Verse 13 and 14 says, In him, in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, I mean, it can't get any more clear than this, and believed in him, when you were saved, in other words, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You can't get any more clear than that. When you heard the gospel of Jesus, when the Lord came into your life, the spirit of God came into your life. And this verse says he seals our hearts for eternity. Right? Almost as like if you're saying, this is gonna do you for your lifetime. And then when you get to heaven, that's gonna be, you're gonna receive your full inheritance. This is the seal of of the Holy Spirit in your life. It's not a two-part process. It's one. Are we clear? We need to know these kind of verses because we bump into people and go, oh, well, he knows the Lord, but he doesn't have the Spirit. And you go, hmm. But what about these verses? To know Jesus is to have the Spirit. It's not a two-part process. Well, there's some people, however, that look very uh, Christian. I was one of those persons back in high school I wanted to look the part play the part of a Christian and my heart was far from God it's very easy for some of us to try and look the part and our hearts be removed from the Lord removed from his people removed from obedience removed from what he's called us to but we can sure look the part good morning brother right it's called faking it There's a duality duality of person. You heard the name John Wesley? Interesting story about the father of the Methodist church, John Wesley. He uh, was a son of of a minister in England, had a godly mother, so he came from a godly home. He attends Oxford. He becomes a double professor in Greek and in logic. He's brilliant. He's his father who's a minister. He's his father's assistant. So he helps prepare for the messages his father's going to preach. He's doing the research in the original language. (laughs) He's brilliant. he's, uh, He's even ordained by the Church of England as a minister. And that's not enough. He feels the call to go on the mission field as a missionary. So he's in England, and he comes as a missionary to the U.S., to Georgia, to be a missionary to American Indians in Georgia. And it's in Georgia, as he's trying to do this mission work, that he realizes he's not a great missionary. Not really a great Christian. In fact, he's not a Christian at all. He he bumps into this Christian group called the Moravians, and they're reading the Word of God in Romans. They focused on worship and the Word and prayer. In other words, a life in Christ. He focused on outward doing for Christ. Titles, position, and not identity in Christ. He heard them reading Romans and he says, and he writes in his journal, this is in the 1700s, he writes in his journal, I felt my heart warm to the reality that I am a sinner indeed of Jesus. But wait a minute, this guy's a religious juggernaut, right? He's a professor of Greek, he's an ordained minister. He's a missionary, and yet he doesn't know Christ. It's one thing to put something ahead of the things that matter most. He didn't have an authentic experience with Jesus. So he he goes back to England, and he's a leader of a revival, of authentic relationship with Jesus, and ultimately starts the Methodist church. See, these disciples of John, they had some form of religion, But any form of religion or church attendance, churchiness, without Jesus is worthless. i got a friend who is, uh, uh, she just had a birthday. So in my heart, I pray for her a lot. She's a Mormon here in town. Here really close to where we are. And uh, man, the Mormons, they work their tails off around the city. They work tirelessly to make a better city. They do a lot of works, and you know why they do a lot of works? Because they have a works-based salvation. (laughs) And I pray for her all the time because she doesn't know Jesus. She has a form of religion. She has a form of service. And if you're not careful, it looks really good. But at the core, at the center of who she is, she doesn't know the Jesus of the Bible. So we talk about this at different times. You know, when we read scripture, we see that the Bible is written from a couple of perspectives, either prescriptive or descriptive. And in the book of Acts, there's a lot of description. In other words, Luke writes the book of Acts and he tells us a lot of the story. He's describing a lot of what's going on in the the story. And there's a lot of prescription too. There's a lot that we can learn that we should prescribe to our own lives. But the thing is interesting in this story is this is definitely a descriptive moment. This is not uh, an ordinary moment. It's an extraordinary moment, right? We use the word extraordinary, it means extraordinary. This is out of the norm. So what happens is Paul meets these guys, finds out they don't know Jesus, tells them Jesus is the Messiah, the one that John was pointing to. They believe, they're baptized, and then something happens. That's all normative, that's all ordinary in salvation experience. Then something extraordinary happens. Paul touches them. The Bible says the Holy Spirit comes on these guys, they begin to speak in tongues and prophesy. Right, not an ordinary event, not something we see every day. And what can be confusing is sometimes people can go, oh, uh, that's because they got saved and that's what should happen every time somebody gets saved. No, that's not what we see in the Bible, right? The normative experience we see throughout Scripture is is one that is represented by a few different things. I'm going to mention those in just a minute. But what I want to show you is there's there's a few special moments where we see extraordinary things happen. This happens in Ephesus, but something extraordinary happened in Samaria in Acts 8. Peter and John had gone to Samaria where the Lord was moving and people were coming to know the Lord. And the Bible says that they prayed and laid hands on some guys and the same thing happened. What's going on? What's different about when I got saved and that didn't happen and when these guys got saved and it did? How do we understand what's going on here? Well, we need to understand that God sometimes does things miraculously, visibly to show his love To show his plan for a group of people. Do you know how the Jews felt about the Samaritans? They didn't like them. They called them half-breeds. They were very prejudiced to the Samaritans. So for a Jew who's come to Christ, this is very important to see that God's presence has now overwhelmed some Samaritans. Because now the Jews have to look at that and go, clearly God is present and moving and working in the Samaritans right? God is making a statement about a people group. Same thing in Asia, same thing here in Ephesus. God is making a very special statement about the people in Asia, in Ephesus. Paul's ministry is about to to blow up all throughout Asia, the province of Asia. And God is making a very special, extraordinary point in what is taking place. Does that make sense? Theologian John Stott puts it this way better than I could. The norm of Christian experience then is a cluster of four things, repentance, faith in Jesus, water baptism, and the gift of the Spirit. That's what happens when we're saved, right? The laying on of apostolic hands, however, together with tongue speaking and prophesying were special to Ephesus as to Samaria. And I would even add uh, to Caesarea uh, where we see uh, Cornelius and Peter in order to demonstrate visibly and publicly that particular groups were incorporated into Christ by the Spirit. So it's important that we see this. We see that there's a normative experience that happens with these men. They come to know Jesus and they're baptized. And there's an extraordinary experience that happens that God is saying something about the mission that's about to take place. That make sense? So then Paul, is he's, he's, he's met the, the uh, almost Christians and now he's going to run into the, the not Christians. You might remember um, a couple of messages back, Paul is in Ephesus. He goes into the synagogue, starts preaching Jesus as Messiah, but he has a boat to catch and he doesn't stay. Remember? And the people say, Well, we want you to stay. Can you can you stay with us? And it's the first time Paul said, Nope. <laughs> Paul's like, I got a boat to catch. I got to get to Jerusalem. But if the Lord wills, I'll come back. Well, clearly God is allowed for Paul to come back, and he's back in Ephesus, back in uh, the synagogue. Verse 8, he says, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them were obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. This is what I want you to see. Paul had never been given three months in the synagogue. Paul might have been given a day or two days or maybe a week before he was run out on the rails and stoned or beaten up, right? But in Ephesus, God has opened up the door for ministry in an incredible way. Three months he gets to preach Jesus as Messiah in the synagogue. And people are coming to Christ. People are, are converting, They're, right? They're going from the Jewish faith to becoming Christians until some of the Jews go, enough. And those Jews are refusing to believe. They've shut their hearts down and said no. And then they start speaking against the church. Five times in the New Testament, it's, the church is called the way. Remember, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And so there was a sort of a, a title, there was sort of a name, the way. That's kind of a cool name, I think. Uh, but five times the church was called the way. And so this says that people in the Jewish synagogue begin to malign the way or the church. And so Paul says, I'm done. And he leaves, right? So then he runs into this third group and the group I want to spend the most time with today, deep Christians. Verse 9, he says, So Paul left them, speaking of the synagogue. He took the disciples with him and they had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So I love this couple of verses. So Paul has been in the synagogue for three months. He's, he's had all these converts that are now becoming disciples of Jesus and disciples of Paul. And Paul says, okay, we're, they, they're kicking us out of this joint. Let's go somewhere else. He takes everybody with him. Who knows how many? I, I don't know. But they leave the synagogue, and uh, Paul's going to go from teaching in the synagogue to synagogue to teaching in this place called the Hall of Tyrannus. Now, we don't know a lot about Tyrannus, but we know that his name means uh, despot or tyrant. (laughs) So again, we don't know if mom and dad didn't like Tyrannus and called him that, or maybe his students called him that, right? This guy's a tyrant, and that just stuck. I don't know. But uh, what's interesting is in Ephesus... Not unlike a lot of Latin cultures, they had a time of siesta. So you would work all morning, which I don't think is a bad plan. We ought to talk about this. Uh, Sometimes we do it whether you know about it or not. Um, People work all morning long. And then at 11 a.m., they choose to have lunch and a a siesta, a nap. And they they spend five hours, 11 a.m. to 4 p.m., resting right? That's what they did in Ephesus. And so Paul has come and worked out some deal with this guy named Tyrant or Tyrannus. He says, when you go home and go to bed for five hours, would it be okay if I used your classroom? Tyrannus was evidently a lecturer of some kind. He taught people who knows what philosophy. I don't know. But Paul said, can I use your building? Can I use your room for a few hours every day? Sure. Sure. So, Paul has now brought all the disciples with him to this place. He's making tents probably in the morning. Then, on his break, instead of napping, uh, all these people are choosing to go deeper in Jesus. Which, that just alone, just hits me a certain way, right? Instead of taking a nap, people are choosing to go deeper in Christ, in their understanding of the Bible, in discipleship with Paul. Paul does this for two years in this classroom. And this is the longest, it was the longest he had been in the synagogue, now it's the longest he's had of stay on a missionary journey. He was in Antioch for a year, he was in Corinth for a year and a half, he's now taught in the, the Hall of Tyrannus for two years, but he's been in Ephesus for three, total. I mean, this is an incredible investment of discipleship, don't you think? Just imagine, can you imagine being in that classroom? If this was it and the Apostle Paul got to teach for three years every day, can you imagine what we would learn? Can you imagine what they learned? See, the thing is we don't have to wonder what they learned. We can see what they learned by what they did. And this is what I want to show you. So people are making the choice. Paul is not, you know, at the synagogue going, all my disciples come here, and he grabs them by the ears, get in this classroom, right? That's not what Paul does. Paul says, hey, I'm going to this hall of Tyrannus. I'd love for you guys to join me. I'll be there every day at 11 o'clock. People have to choose to go, "Uh, I'm used to napping. No, okay, I'm, I'm gonna come and I'm gonna learn. They have to intentionally make the choice to go deeper with Jesus. So Paul is teaching two to three years in Ephesus making these disciples. You know, it's the same for us. Friends, listen, it's the same. We have to choose. We have to make a choice to go deeper in Jesus. Otherwise, we're content standing in the shallow end, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You go to the pool to stand in the shallow end and kick the water around? No, swim. Get in the deep end. Feel the experience of swimming in the deep. And many of us choose to not do that. And I'm just saying, listen, These people made a choice in deep discipleship with Paul. Here's what's interesting, before we go. Deep discipleship is not about more information. Do you hear me? Deep discipleship is not just knowing more stuff. It's it's having information that leads us to mission. It's having the right information that leads us to action. Verse 10, this went on for two years. By the way, what is this? This is Paul teaching in the hall of Tyrannus. For two years, this went on. It's almost like this verse is saying, this is what Paul did, and what was the result of Paul teaching for two years? Look here. This went on for two years, His teaching in the hall. So what? Well, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Are you kidding me? This is not just a hyperbolic statement that's just crazy. What I'm saying to you is Paul taught for two to three years in Ephesus, and as a result, not of more information piled on top of information. Thanks, we understand it now. No life change, no obedience change, no missional direction. No, instead, we've got the information. We're becoming who God wants us to be, and it leads us to mission. How does it lead us to mission? Every Jew and Greek in the the province of Asia, here's the word of the Lord. Paul couldn't do that on his own. Could he? In fact, we know that the the church of Colossae was started in this time period. So Paul didn't start the church of Colossae. He wrote to the Colossians, but he didn't start the church. A student of his did. A student of his in Ephesus, his name is Epaphras. Look at Colossians 1-7. Paul says, you learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the spirit. So a student who's been under Paul in Ephesus, learning in the hall of Tyrannus, takes the information, goes deeper in his discipleship and gets on mission and starts a church in Colossae. But it's not just a heart for the church in Colossae. He has a church. This is where he's from. He has a heart for that whole area, Colossians 4, 12, and 13. He has a heart for mission. Verse 12 says, Epaphras, who is one of you, Paul says. In other words, he's from there. He's a servant of Christ Jesus. He sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in the will and all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Colossi, uh, Epaphras is concerned about the church at Colossae. He's concerned about the, the people in Hierapolis. Remember, that's a little town really close to Laodicea we just talked about. That whole area, all, this is about a 20-mile radius around these folks, not unlike central Arkansas, Right? I'm concerned about the people in West Little Rock. I'm concerned about the people in Southwest Little Rock. I'm concerned about people in Benton and Conway. He, he was concerned for this area. See, the thing is, Paphros wasn't content with more information, like much of the American church. We pile information on information and on information, and we know so much and we do so little. I'm, I'm talking about me. I was praying this week and I just, I was so convicted of how little I do. I need to pray more. I need to witness more. I need to disciple more. So hear me not pointing a finger except this way. We have a lot of information. My prayer is that the information lead us to action. I wanna put up a map. We just finished a series uh, in uh, the seven churches of Revelation called Ecclesia. Remember that? Take a look at Ephesus and get a look at those other six churches. Isn't it interesting how Ephesus is sort of the epicenter, right? Isn't it interesting how Ephesus is sort of the, the point and then there's just a, there's a circle and even as Jesus speaks to John in Revelation, he says he starts in Ephesus. Even Jesus starts the conversation in Ephesus, and it goes around this way, almost in sort of a uh, male route. And you can see Hierapolis and Colossae right there next to, uh, to uh, Laodicea. This is the point. Most likely all those churches were started when Paul was teaching in Ephesus. Most likely, these churches started not necessarily just by Paul. We don't know who started all those churches. His students started them. The people who were listening, the people who were listening day in and day out for two to three years. They, they, the, well, information wasn't enough. They let the information move them to action. let that information move them to information, to, to mission. Two to three years That's eight churches at least, and maybe there's one in Hierapolis that Paul's talking about. Maybe that's nine. As a church planner, I'm kind of getting pretty jealous here, right? In October, Lori and I will celebrate four years that we've been here, and I love you, and I love our church, and I love what God is doing, but I want us to do more. God wants us to do more. Did you know that the church is not a place where we just come for 60 years and say hi to each other every week? That's not the church. Church is not a place where we come and we study just a little bit more and we tuck that information into a library of information and we don't do anything with it. God, forgive us and move us, motivate us, challenge us, send us. Mission ought to be normative for us, for every church of Jesus. When you read Acts, you see that it's not just about hanging out. It's about learning and growing and being sent. And somebody like Epaphras going, I'll go. I'm going to go home. And we see that in two and a half years, Paul and his students accomplished something unbelievable in the province of Asia. That every Greek and every Jew heard the word of the Lord. In less than three years. Incredible. Friends, it's God's desire that we be obedient to the great commission of Jesus. It's God's heart that we take the love of Jesus to the world around us, to our work, to our neighbor. And listen, I'm praying that some of you may begin to pray and that God would lay on your heart so directed and, and, and purposefully a city or a country. Or a neighborhood, that God would just begin to move in us, and we would go, okay, Lord. My life is is meant to be bigger than just this moment, my job, my family, right here, right now. No, God is calling us all to mission. We ought to be sending people. We ought to be raising church planters. We ought to be planting churches. We ought to be helping. In three years, all the people of Asia, they hear the word of the Lord. What about just Southwest Little Rock? We've been here four years. Have the people of Southwest Little Rock heard the word of the Lord? And why not? We can do more. I can do more. I want to close. Here's my question this morning. What's the depth of your discipleship? Are you a shallow Christian? Are you a Christian at all? Do you have some form of religiosity, some form of church attendance and you think that's good, but you're just splashing around in the shallow end? Are you ready to go deep? You ready to learn more to know Christ and his word? This is there's a couple of ways we want to do that. Obviously through teaching we want to do that, but in our city groups, our city groups are meant to move you towards discipleship. They're meant to move you towards conversation, to authentic relationship with Jesus and other believers, to prayer. City groups move you towards knowing Christ more. We do first principles. It's about a two and a half year study of discipleship. It moves us to know him more. We do a cohort of a seminary level uh, program or booklet. We would love for you to join us in that so that you can go deeper In knowing Christ, God wants us on mission without question. My question is, are you willing to go? Not are you ready to go? God will make you ready. The better question is, are you willing? David Platt says, we got to give God a blank check of our lives and say, God, here's the, you spend it. You write it. You do with it what you choose. One last thing I wanna share with you. Acts 4.31, I didn't put it on our screen. It's a story of when Peter and John have been on mission, they come back to the church and the church has been praying in Acts 4. And they tell the church all that God had done and all that's going on and they're praying and, and as they're praying, God shakes the very foundations of the room that they're in. And it says that the whole church is filled with the Spirit of the Lord and that everyone leaves there to speak with boldness, to preach, even some translations say, with boldness. Everyone. You're a preacher. How you live preaches a message. Where you work, conversations, questions, family, neighbors, My prayer is that we just don't keep talking about information, but that information leads us to action and mission. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you for the way that you love us, God. Thank you for your word. God, as I read this story and I think about all these believers who chose, who were intentional to go deeper in their understanding of you and discipleship of you, and then that turned into mission, they chose to not sleep. They chose to not take a nap. And God, even as I read that, I'm so convicted about the American church that we're asleep. We're making choices of convenience and ease. I'm just tired, I just wanna take a nap. When we could be going deeper with you, we could know you more, we could love you more, we could serve you more with intentional choices. God, it is your heart that people come to know you. And when we understand you more, when we we see your word and we, we, we live in your word, we're obedient to your word, we begin to get your heart. And your heart is that people know you, Jesus. May we be obedient to the great commission to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that you've commanded us, Lord Jesus. But we can't make disciples unless we are a disciple. Just as our mission statement says, God, may we become authentic disciples who make disciples. Lord, may you convict our hearts to go deeper in you, so that we can be confident of who we are, what we believe, how we communicate what we believe. So when you give us an opportunity of of mission, you give us an opportunity of conversation, of, of apologetic, God, that we are the ability, the knowledge, the understanding, the story of our own to put it all together and see you make a difference in the life of someone else. Lord, help us to move from information to mission for your glory, for your glory in Jesus' name.